0: This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Venture capital is a high-risk and potentially high-reward area for investors. Increasingly, it's also quite high-profile, as more and more companies come to prominence having leveraged venture investing to reach maturity. My guest today, Heath Terry, is the author of Venture Capital Horizons, a series of Goldman Sachs research reports on why venture is growing and where it could be headed. Heath, Welcome.
1: Thanks for having me, Jay.
0: So why do we need to pay attention to what venture firms are doing with their investment dollars? Aren't many of these
1: concepts still pretty far from having a
0: significant impact?
1: I think there's really three reasons that you have to pay attention to this now. One, the companies themselves that are venture-backed are getting bigger and more important. Things like Uber and Airbnb and Palantir, not just in technology, but beyond that, you're seeing companies in consumer and healthcare that are getting bigger and so thus having a bigger impact on the economy, bigger impact on investors. The second reason is you're seeing public market investors becoming increasingly invested in private companies through venture. If you're invested in a mutual fund, it might be a large cap blue chip mutual fund, but there's a very good chance that they actually have money in private companies, like some of the ones that I just named, and are increasingly investing in that. And then the third is because you're seeing corporates themselves really start to invest in this. Every major corporation has a venture capital arm of some sort or another, because investing in these companies gives them exposure to new technologies, new business models, and potentially financial returns.
0: Including Goldman Sachs.
1: Including Goldman Sachs.
0: So On the subject of corporate venture capital, how are firms using VC to forward some of their strategic goals? Or is it just a way to get familiar with the innovation in the space?
1: So it's a little bit of both. Certainly, it's a way to keep your eye on companies that are either innovating in the category that you're in, could potentially become a competitor, or maybe even an acquisition target longer term. It's a way to maintain a level of intelligence about what important startups or founders are doing in a given category. And when you've got the kind of capital sitting on corporate balance sheets that you do right now, the bar for making that kind of investment is a lot lower. If your alternative is putting money into treasuries the bar for making an investment into a venture firm is pretty low. And so in addition to the financial returns that you get out of that, you also get access to talent. You also get access to new technologies and business models and you get a hedge to make sure that to the extent that that company is going to be acquired, it's not your big public competitor that's acquiring it, at least not without you knowing about it.
0: What impact has the low interest rate environment had on funds that are seeking to attract capital and on private companies that are looking for investors?
1: One of the biggest impacts of the low interest rate environment has been a reduction in volatility and a dramatic increase in correlation of assets. Venture capital is still a place where you've got relatively low correlation. The things that win really win and the things that don't go to zero. So if you're looking for alpha? You're looking for alpha, this is a place to find it. And it's increasingly a place that can absorb a lot of capital. There's a lot of excess capital sitting out there in funds, in family offices that need a place to go. And to the extent that you've got companies in this space that need investment capital that are growing to 50, 60, $70 billion in value, this is a place that you can put it beyond just the market where you know you're going to get market returns or you're getting very highly correlated returns right now and try and offset some of that correlation and try and deliver some alpha.
0: What impact does the growing size and scope of venture capital that you detail in this report As an asset class, really, what impact does that have on the startup environment? Or put another way, are there more unicorns today because there's a lot of money out there? Or is there a lot of money out there because there are a lot of unicorns?
1: We get into this cycle, right? Those two things end up feeding on each other, at least have been for a while now. Companies are choosing to stay private longer. And they're choosing to stay private longer for a variety of reasons that we can get into a little bit later. But ultimately, if they're staying private longer, that means their valuations are getting higher, that means more capital is needed to fund them, to cash out earlier investors, to compensate employees. And so as those companies get bigger, they're drawing more capital in. And at least so far, the returns have been enough for investors to want to continue to feed into this. Back to that dispersion that I was talking about you seeing, everybody wants to be the guy who invested in the next big home run in venture capital. And to the extent that those things keep drawing more investors in, they're going to keep creating more companies and allowing those companies to grow bigger.
0: More private companies are staying private for longer. What are the main drivers behind that?
1: That's one of the big debates in the venture capital community right now is – when should companies be going public? Is this trend of staying private longer ultimately a good thing for the companies themselves? And you'll find venture capitalists, you'll find founders with very different views here. But it's happening for a variety of reasons. It's happening, one, because companies do have access to capital and they've got the ability to stay private longer, You know, to the extent that in the past you needed capital to pay your employees, you needed capital, you needed a liquidity event for your early investors. Investors are willing to stay private longer. There have been enough positive experiences behind companies that have stayed private long enough to really work out all the kinks, get the business model right, get to scale, not have to deal with the scrutiny of the public market that they've been willing to stay private longer because it's sort of driven that as a better outcome. At the same time, there's a certain discipline that comes with being a public market. Bill Gurley at Benchmark refers to it as being on the field, actually playing the game as opposed to practicing all week. That scrutiny that comes with that, as well as the access to more investors, the access to equity as a form of M&A or form of capital for growing the business becomes a lot more attractive.
0: So how does the venture mindset differ from that of an investor who's focused purely on public markets? Are there different factors or metrics that matter more for venture than the S&P 500, for example?
1: The biggest thing for a venture investor is you have to completely change your mindset to one of going from avoiding mistakes, avoiding big losses, to focusing on saying yes. You're going to make much more money. You're going to more than cover your losses if you get that one yes right. And the estimates that are out there range from anywhere from 60 to 90% of venture investments being failures or being investments that they lose money on. But you're still getting significant returns off the 10 to 40% because those are 10x, 100x, 1000x kind of venture propositions, companies like Facebook, companies like Google that produce those kind of returns that continue to draw in incremental investors.
0: How do the metrics evolve for the investor from, say, a seed or a Series A through to the Series C or D?
1: You're starting to see a lot of gray area in those terms. What used to be a Series A is now a seed round or an angel round. You've seen this massive explosion in angel networks and angel investing starting those companies out because the cost of starting a company has come down dramatically. When I first started covering the internet space in 1999, if you wanted to start a company, the first thing you did was you went out, you raised $10 million and you started building a data center. Now, you take your credit card, you you sign up for an AWS account, you open your laptop. VCs talk all the time about startups coming in and the entire company exists on a laptop. And so that's dramatically changing what it takes. And because of that, the seed rounds and the requirements between an A, B, C, D really start to change
0: are people more hungry for that early, early seed investment than ever before? Or are they willing to
1: wait and invest later? Depends on the type of investor. There are certainly a lot more angel investors out there right now. These are technologies that a lot of people have a better understanding for. You've got angel networks that allow people access to things that in the past, you had to live in the valley, you had to know somebody, you had to have a guy at a company that was starting something that you had a relationship when they really were friends and family type rounds that used to be built. Now you don't need that. So there's certainly a lot more interest in that stage of investing. At the same time, the amount of dollars going into those later stage rounds are just so much bigger because the companies themselves are so much bigger. You're seeing billion dollar, $3 billion, $4 billion dollar rounds because you're talking about $40, $50 billion companies.
0: And so that part's become a little bit more institutionalized. The, Absolutely. The ladder, okay? So Obviously, the question of valuation becomes important when the IPO market's kind of quiet. How are private investors working to increase transparency around valuations?
1: That's one of the surprises that a lot of private companies have had to deal with, especially once they start taking public investor money. Public investor money have to report valuations every quarter. They've got to publish something- Even in that mutual fund. Exactly. That tells you what they think that's worth. And in a lot of cases- that's a decision that's made by a committee that's completely separate from the investor in that company and so it's it's for creating, very good reasons for very good reasons so it's created a lot of headlines that have been disruptive for some of those companies we're getting and investors are getting a better understanding of sort of how that process works now but initially it caused a lot of agita for some of those companies and for some of those investors but what you're seeing from a transparency standpoint is you're seeing more numbers making it out into the public markets these companies are bigger so they have to speak to investors They have a larger number of investors that they have to cater to even as private companies. And so there is more transparency than you've had in the past for most companies.
0: As companies stay private longer, they inevitably face pressures either from the founders, early investors, employees for liquidity. But when you're going five, six years without the major liquidity event of an IPO, how are companies
1: managing through those challenges? It's something that you've seen evolve over the last say five years, but essentially later stage investors are buying out earlier stage investors without there necessarily even being a capital event for the company in the process. So employees that get to a point where they've vested their stock, they want some sort of liquidity event, get an opportunity to sell into these later stage rounds. You're seeing funds that have been developed largely for that to take advantage of that opportunity. You've also got big investors. The SoftBank Vision Fund is one of them that are coming in and looking at these later stage opportunities or these companies that have gotten to a scale that they're meaningful enough for something as big as a $100 billion venture fund like SoftBank's to actually have an impact that's also absorbing some of that supply or creating a liquidity event that in the past needed an IPO to happen.
0: Talk a little bit about the trends we're seeing in terms of VC investing. You've taken a look so far at three different industries healthcare, consumer, financial technology, or fintech. What's happening in those fields in particular that's made them attractive to VC firms?
1: So, healthcare has always been a huge area for venture capital. You've got to fund biotech, you've got a very rich M&A environment for that, which is always a way to sort of fuel the returns in the space. You don't have to rely on getting to an IPO in order to generate a return. And you've also had a lot of corporate venture capital companies like J&J and Lilly and Merck are all very big corporate venture capital investors. So they want to see the pipeline. Exactly. And so one of the big areas that we looked at is the field of regenerative medicine, anti-aging. Nobody wants to get older. And that's where you're seeing a lot of that venture money going, particularly within the healthcare field, because that's the problem that is the furthest away from being solved by traditional pharmaceutical-based medicine. And so you're seeing a lot of investment put into that area, not just by healthcare companies. Google's been an investor in this area as well because we're all trying to live forever.
0: Talk about the Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability, or LOHAS, (laughs) movement that's spreading throughout the consumer space. What do you think is driving that interest
1: well, it's always great when you can put an acronym around that's around not one of the greatest like acronyms
0: though no, no it's
1: not I won't claim to have come up with it but sustainability health Those are huge areas within consumer. We're all trying to lessen our footprint on the planet. We're all trying to eat healthier. We're all trying to live cleaner. And so you're seeing a lot of investment by companies into those areas. Something like 70% of new product launches within consumer have some component of sustainability or health or green living around it. And any time a venture capitalist sees that kind of trend, they want to put money behind it.
0: One of the more innovative or unusual, certainly novel financing mechanisms that's picked up interest is the initial coin offering or ICOs. Companies use ICOs to raise money by issuing their own cryptocurrency. What's the logic, to the extent there is one, behind that development?
1: Yeah. The ICO market has gotten really big really fast. We've seen in just the last four months about $2 billion going into ICOs and the four months prior to that, that number would have rounded close to zero. So this is something that's really early stage. It's still developing. There's a lot we don't know about it yet. But what you have is you have a lot of investors who have made money in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ether that are looking for other places to put that money to work. And at one end of the spectrum, you have IPOs. At the other end of the spectrum, you have things like crowdfunding models that are out there. The ICO is an attempt to try and bring the best of both of those worlds together and allow companies to fund projects or fund themselves in a way that doesn't have sort of the same complications that an equity offering would.
0: What have regulators said about this space? It feels a little bit like a securities offering and yet it's got a different moniker. Hmm. What has been the regulatory reaction to this growing asset class, I guess?
1: You've seen different reactions in different countries. You've had some countries that have chosen to essentially shut it down. You've had others that have allowed it to go forward and just simply said they're watching it. That's essentially what you're seeing here in the U.S. The current advice from the regulators has generally been sort of a buyer beware kind of comment, but with the direction that the founders that are starting these ICOs will be held or run the risk of being held to the promises that they're making during this process.
0: Beyond ICOs, fintech companies in the retail banking space have gone through a challenging period. Do you see the potential for a turnaround or where are investors looking in that space?
1: Sure. So what you get is you get sort of shifting priorities. If we were having this conversation three years ago, four years ago, everything was consumer facing. It was lending. It was asset management. It was an app on your phone. Some of those did well, some of them not so well. But what you're seeing now is we've kind of gone to the back office. The money that's being invested in this space is a lot less less consumer focused, much more focused on taking the financial services infrastructure that's out there, making it more efficient, reducing the amount of risks, reducing the amount of people that are needed for a task, creating some efficiencies and trying to give these companies the ability to operate on a lower cost base or at a lower level of risk or capital required. That is where you see the financial technology priorities now.
0: So rather than blowing up the incumbents, it's to help make the incumbents more efficient?
1: That's the way we're heading right now, or at least that's certainly where the money's going.
0: Okay, so outside the US, where's venture really taking off and uh, what trends are driving that kind of activity offshore?
1: The biggest area of development, obviously, is in Asia. We have seen Asia as a percentage of total venture capital go from 10% five years ago to over 40% as of the most recent quarter. And that's going into big companies that are trying to address a lot of the same problems in Asia that are being addressed here in the U.S. It's transportation companies, autonomous driving, it's financial technology companies, consumer electronics companies, big handset manufacturers, in some cases that are the beneficiaries of venture capital, but are ultimately using it to build and address the same issues in Asia that successful venture capital companies have addressed in the U.S.
0: What big VC-funded industries are poised to reshape the public markets in the relatively near term, and what trends are perhaps in the earlier stages but they could have a decisive impact over the longer term?
1: I think on the near-term side, it's areas like transportation, it's travel. talked about some of the healthcare areas that potentially have public opportunities in the near-term. Cybersecurity is another big area where you potentially see some near-term opportunities for the public markets. These are all things that have been really important to venture investors over the last few years because they've been important to consumers or, in the case of cybersecurity, really important to enterprises. On the earlier stage side, artificial intelligence is by far the biggest area of focus there. But I'd also mention robotics as another related area where you're seeing a lot of investment and a lot of promise longer term. You're also seeing some real opportunities there in some of the earlier stage healthcare areas of focus, even though those are, you know, in a lot of cases related to AI and robotics. But you've had nearly a 500% increase in the amount of VC funding going into those fields. And we've simply never seen that much money, that much new companies, creation, go into an area and not produce some big, meaningful companies longer term.
0: All right. Heath, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jake. That's all for this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time.
2: This podcast was recorded on November 14th, 2017.